Are we getting a little bit of a ring here? How's that now? Any better? We'll see. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 4 this morning, the end of Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at the end of 4 and end of 5. The end of Acts chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 36 of chapter 4 and down through verse 11 of chapter 5. The scripture says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there were... Excuse me, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts today. What we're looking at is an elaboration on the summary that Luke gives at the end of chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, he's describing the one heart and one soul of the church as they ministered to one another. There was wonderful unity, and especially that expression, one heart and one soul. There was sacrificial giving. They started thinking in terms of stewardship instead of selfishness, sharing instead of hoarding. And they were on mission. They're preaching the gospel, preaching the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And there is favor in Jerusalem for these believers. And the practice in verse 34 and 35 is just given some illustration in Barnabas and also Ananias and Sapphira. In other words, what exactly was going on based upon verses 34 and 35. Well, you have an illustration of Barnabas or Joseph in verses 36 and 37 who gave a gift. 
And then another gift, which as we read through chapter five, we recognize that God was dealing with this couple who appeared to be just like any of the others who came and gave to the church at this time. But there was something that the Lord saw and that he gave Peter insight to see that no one else saw. And the Lord judged it and he dealt with it. And I believe what we have in chapter five, especially is a divine warning against deception. And that's the title of message, a divine warning against deception. Now, I don't believe verses 36 and 37 fits into that, other than we have a positive example of what is taking place. And in verses 36 and 37, we have a gracious and generous gift and giver that blessed the church. The gracious and generous gift and giver that blessed the church. We're introduced to Joseph. We hardly ever think of this man as Joseph, because in the rest of the book of Acts, he's just called Barnabas. But his name is Joseph, common Israelite name. We're also told that he is a Levite, so he was of the tribe of Levi. Doesn't necessarily mean he was involved in the priesthood, but he was of that tribe. And then he was also of Cyprian birth. That means he was from Cyprus. And so when you think about Joseph in terms of his location where he was born, but also his identity with Israel in the land. We have those details that show his identity, but he got a nickname, and the nickname is Barnabas. And for us, we just think of the name Barnabas. We don't always think about what it means, but Luke helps us to see what it means as he translates it and gives us some idea of not only Barnabas's influence here, but as he sets Barnabas as one of the characters in the book of Acts because Barnabas is going to come up later. But what is this nickname? Bar, son, Nabas, lifting up. The son of lifting up or the one who brings encouragement, the one who lifts up others. Barnabas, Joseph, received this name because of the apostles. It was the apostles who gave him this name. And I believe if you look at the full book of Acts, you can see it's not only this scene here, but partly this scene here that helps the, the, the church to recognize his encouragement. How did he encourage here? By his giving. Verse 37 tells us that he was wealthy enough to own a tract of land and sell it. This isn't likely his only property, but he owns a tract of land. He sells it, and then he brings all of the money from that sale to the apostles, just as it says in verses 34 and 35, that people were doing that for the sake of those who had need. Again, look at verse 35. It says, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So you have people who are of need. People, in addition to Barnabas, had been bringing, but Barnabas is one who owned a piece of land. He sold it. And this was of great encouragement to the people, certainly the people who received the blessing, the financial blessing, but also to the apostles who were then able to distribute this, to recognize there were needy people, needy believers, who then after receiving the funds from this land were now able to have, they were able to give these funds and help them have their needs met. And I think 
as we look at Barnabas's life, both here, and we're not going to take the time to go through the entire book of Acts to see it. But if you did, if you wanted to do a sort of a subject study, a topical study of one life, and just look for Barnabas's name and influence in the book of Acts, I think you will see that he was an encouragement. And if you want to be an encouragement, I hope you do as a Christian. I hope that an example like Barnabas would help you. And I'm not only pointing to, this passage points to his giving, and you can certainly be an encouragement in that way. But you can be an encouragement in a variety of ways. You can encourage with your words, as you say kind and godly words to other people. You can encourage by your deed of love towards a fellow believer. You can encourage by generosity as he does here. You can encourage just by your personal presence with someone. In a time of sorrow or suffering, you can encourage by, as Barnabas later did, by his evangelistic zeal in preaching the gospel. Barnabas is one who traveled with the Apostle Paul, and where did they go but to his homeland Cyprus so they could preach the gospel there. He was very zealous for the gospel. He also helped Paul in the very first place to unify or to come to as he came to Jerusalem, he brought Paul, Saul as he was called at the time, to the other apostles, and he helped them recognize that Saul truly was a converted man, and so he was a unifier. He was somebody who strengthened relationships between believers. There are lots of ways that you can be an encouragement. Here, I believe he's introduced, and he's introduced as Barnabas, as the son of encouragement, in part because he did have the gift of giving and because he used that to bless people. And that certainly challenges us to remember that as stewards of the money that God has given to us, stewards of the possessions the Lord gives us, there may be times when we need to give something up for the sake of what God is doing for God's people, for the mission that God has for us to do. We give up something that belongs to us, that's rightfully ours, and that's not something that is commanded here. It's an example here. And I think as you see uh, through the book of Acts, and even prior to this, the Christians were, because of Christ and because of their recognition of what God had done for them, they were willing to love and to give to one another, even if it came down to personal possessions, giving up for the sake of one another. And so we have the first thing we're confronted with in verses 36 and 37, after that description of the church, is in a man who's a gracious, generous giver, and the gift that he gave blessed the church. And I hope as we even think about our own lives that we would have that purpose as well, that our lives would not be only unto ourselves, but we would think about the place that God has us in this world and even within the church to be an encouragement and help to other people. I think you could just ask yourself the question, how have I done that? Or how am I doing that? How have I encouraged others? And you might say, ask the question, well, how have others encouraged me? And that may be a way that you can also see how you can encourage others. The following this gracious and generous gift and giver that blessed the church, there is now... In chapter 5, a wicked act of deception. 
that offended and tested God. And you could say corrupted the church, at least for this time. I say corrupted the church because we might look at chapter 4 and see that everything's okay, everything seems to be going well, everything seems to be being blessed, and there's all sorts of good things happening. But in chapter 5, now we're suddenly confronted with the reality that Satan is active in the very place where God has brought blessing. And why do I say Satan? Because in verse 3, Peter raises attention to Satan. We're informed of this gift that Ananias and Sapphira brought to the apostles, and as Peter confronts it, he mentions Satan's name, that Satan is involved in what has transpired in their hearts to, to actually bring this gift to the apostles' feet. So what a strange thing to recognize that in the very place where there's so much blessing, Satan could be, and indeed is at work. Secretly, unknown to everyone but Peter as he's given perception, and of course God who knows all things. And so let's look in detail at this wicked act. We're introduced in chapter 5 and verse 1 to Ananias. Hananiah would be the Old Testament equivalent, and Sapphira. And they, like Barnabas, seemed to be wealthy. They had a piece of property that they sold. And for them to do that was, again, in connection with verses 34 and 35 and Barnabas' example, this is a common thing that's taking place. This isn't out of the ordinary except for what happened. So this is likely one gift among many that had come to the apostles to take care of the needs of those who had needs. They sold this piece of property. This is a very public event because as Ananias comes with the price, it says in the end of verse 2 that he laid it at the apostles' feet. So we don't know the exact scene of how this is happening, but we do, do know in a very public way, just like Barnabas, this gift is being given to the apostles for distribution. And we know it's public, obviously, because we have a record of it. But there's something deceptive about what Ananias and Sapphira did. And we're told this is an act of collusion in verse 2 because it says that Ananias is the actor, kept back some of the price for himself, but his wife had the full knowledge of it. She also knew what was taking place. The word that is used there that's translated uh, full knowledge is the idea that she knew with him what had been done, and she knew what he was doing. And she apparently has no problem with him representing things this way. But she's not here in the scene when the gift is presented. This is just Ananias and this gift and the apostles. And if you said, for instance, in today in American terms, that the price of this property was $10,000, that they only brought a portion of it, let's say 8000 And they kept that other 2000 for themselves. Ananias kept that for himself. But as he's bringing this gift to the apostles, just like these other gifts, and I think it's critical that you see this, 
that the bringing of that gift and laying it at the apostles' feet was meant to indicate that there was an equal uh, amount between the price of the sale of the land and the gift to the apostles. I don't think you can see it any other way for them to be charged with wrongdoing here. That what is taking place is they sold the land for so much, but they didn't disclose in the process of giving it that the amount that they were giving, they kept back some. And so there's deception involved. There's collusion involved. This is not just Ananias doing it himself. His wife is knowingly participating with him. And why do you think Ananias and Sapphira were doing this? In other words, why would they go through with giving that amount of money but keep a portion of it? And you can ask that question and try to answer it even from what Peter says or what happens in the passage. You could say perhaps it had to do with covetousness. doesn't say that. Maybe they had a genuine need. Maybe they had a plan for investment. We don't really know, but what we do know is that they wanted their gift to be known, and they wanted it to appear as though it was just like all of these other gifts that had been given sacrificially and totally to the Lord. And so in their giving, their giving was not so much about what it was going to do as it was about their own purposes. And their very act of deception in giving it, God saw, and he's going to deal with through Peter, Peter's perception, I believe, given to Peter, and Peter's confrontation we'll see in the next couple of verses. But I, I just want to, before we, before we get into verses 3 and following, recognize that when we act, whether it's giving or anything else, and we're acting for the sake of our appearance or our reputation or what others perceive us to be, God always knows the reality. God always knows who you really are. There are no secrets that you can keep from God. God not only looks at the appearance, but he looks at the reality of our hearts. And I think with regard to this particular subject, he knows what we are giving. He knows why we are giving. He knows if we're giving out of guilt or gladness or to be seen by others. He knows if we're giving cheerfully he knows if we're giving according to what we're able. And so this passage just helps us to see something, and we'll see it as it unfolds, that God really has a response to giving that is done for the sake of just appearance. When there's deception going on just for the purpose of drawing attention to self, God knows that. And he in this case, deals with it certainly as a warning to the church and as discipline for Ananias and Sapphira. Look at verse 3 as we see the confrontation of Ananias. Imagine the scene. We're not given any intervening discussion. If that amount of money, whether coins or 
other some other kind of currency is laid at the apostles' feet, the first thing that you hear Peter saying, you would not expect him to say. I doubt Ananias expected him to say what he said. But immediately, Peter identifies a lie. Verse 3, it says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Peter doesn't have the opportunity to look at any sale records. He hasn't talked talk to any real estate agents. He's not getting this information from someone else, but he knows in the process of the giving of this gift that there's a lie present, that some of the price that Ananias is, has, has received, he has not given. And so he identifies the lie immediately, and he presents the source of the lie as satanic, who, of course, we know that Satan is the father of lies. Look at what it says, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And so Satan, the adversary, has filled this man's heart, whether he's a Christian or not. And I can see arguments for both sides as to whether Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. Talk about that later. But whether he is or not, Satan has filled his heart to do what he just did, to present this in such a way as it appears that this is the whole price, but it's not. And in the very scene where it appears like Ananias is doing something good, he's deceiving and he's lying. Satan has filled his heart. I'm going to ask you to turn over to John chapter 13 for a moment. John chapter 13. I hesitate to begin here, although I think this is a helpful illustration. I'm going to use one other passage to draw our attention to the work of Satan here. The reason I hesitate is because Judas is the subject of the illustration. Judas, of course, betrayed the Lord, the son of perdition. But notice what verse 2 says, as Jesus is here with his disciples, he's about to wash their feet, but it says, verse 2, during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. What I'm looking at here is the influence of Satan with Judas. Satan had put into his heart to betray Jesus. Now, that is different from his actually entering Judas. And by that, I mean, talk about demon possession, having Satan himself indwell you. Look at verse 27, as Judas receives the morsel from Christ in verse 27, it says, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Why am I drawing attention to those two verses? Because one suggests that Satan was active in putting something into Judas's heart before he actually indwelt Judas. And our passage in Acts chapter 5 doesn't say that Satan in any way indwelled Ananias and Sapphira, but he did fill their heart. He filled Ananias' heart. Another illustration I would give is when Satan, in 1 Chronicles 21, stands up against Israel and it says, moved David to number Israel. David, of course, is a believer. 
I don't believe a believer can be indwelt by a demon. I don't believe David was, but can Satan influence the heart of a believer? Yes, he moved David to number Israel. So Satan can put something in someone's heart. Satan can also take things away. When the word of God is preached, remember Jesus' parable of the sower? It's the evil one who comes and takes away things from the hearts of those who hear. So I think we need to recognize that Satan has the power, whether it's through his own active agency or those who, as demons, serve along with him, him. Satan can influence the hearts of people, even believers. He can fill the heart of someone to do something. Now, that fact doesn't mean you have to do it. Right? Just because you have a thought that enters in that might be fueled by the devil or even put there by the devil in some way, we don't know the mechanism, it doesn't mean you have to do. And if you do do something, you can never say, the devil made me do it. You have personal responsibility before God, and so do I. And as believers, we are told, James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, your Satan. That's what Satan means. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You go back to Acts chapter 5, Peter is charging Ananias with following the suggestion of Satan to lie. And I say it's the suggestion because when it says he filled his heart, this is, I don't believe it's demon possession, but it's Satan's activity to fill his heart to deceive. And we are, if we have been born into this world as human beings, we are deceptive. If our father was the devil, but even if we had been redeemed, we have a tendency because of our sinful hearts to be deceptive. To put on a front that is not really the truth. And in this case, the front that Ananias and Sapphira are putting on is that they're givers, they're giving the totality of this gift to the church for the needs, when in reality they kept back a portion but presented it as this sacrificial uh, sort of burnt offering where they gave everything, but they really didn't. And God saw it, and he gave Peter insight. Satan was the source of that lie, but he was the one who's responsible for the lie. Peter says that that lie was perpetrated not to the apostles or against the apostles. It was actually against the Holy Spirit. Notice that in verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? From a human standpoint, he's bringing money from the sale, not all of it, but some of it, to the apostles. And you might say from a human standpoint, he's just presenting a falsehood to the apostles. But I think we need to remember that those apostles, along with the rest of the believers, were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so in a very direct way, they were, yes, lying to the apostles, but the apostles and the church is indwelt by the Spirit. And the Spirit, of course, is seeing everything. And they're actually lying to the Holy Spirit. 
This is one of those passages that helps us to see that the Holy Spirit is not a force, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, not some kind of an impersonal, active thing that God does, but a being, a person who has knowledge of what is taking place here, who can be sinned against. Scripture teaches not only can you sin against the Holy Spirit or lie to here, you can rebel against him. Psalm 106, verse 33, because they were rebellious against his spirit. Matthew 12, 31, he can be blasphemed. Acts 7, 51, he can be resisted, as Stephen accused the Sanhedrin of doing. He can be quenched, quench not the spirit. He can be grieved. How can you grieve a force? But Ephesians 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. He can also be insulted. I don't know how you can insult a force. But I know how a person could be insulted. The writer of Hebrews says, Of how much sorer punishment suppose he shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. So he can be rebelled against, he can be blasphemed, he can be resisted, he can be quenched, grieved, and certainly he can be lied to, and he's being lied to here. Lied against God, to God, directly to God. That's what Ananias is doing. Now, Peter has more to say. Look at verse 4. His charge of Satan filling his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, identifying immediately the lie, having that perception from God, I'm sure giving it to him. But then Peter asks some rhetorical questions to indicate that Ananias has responsibility for doing what he did. This is not an act of compulsion. This is not communism in the early church. No, this is personal private property that has been owned by Ananias, and even after it was sold, he had the right to do with those funds as he would. So the rhetorical questions there, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Of course it did. He didn't have to sell this. That piece of property could have remained his, and it would not have been a sin. It was part of what uh, it came to his possession either through inheritance or maybe he had earned and purchased that land, but it was it belonged to him. And then he asked the question, after it was sold, was it not under your control? So even after the money came into his hand, he did not have to give it to the church. He could have chosen to reinvest it, put it in the bank, so to speak, He's not compelled. And by the way, I didn't mention this, but Barnabas is not compelled either. Can I go backtrack for just a moment? In verses 36 and 37, some people draw attention to the fact that Joseph or Barnabas was a Levite. Levites in the Old Testament were not to have an inheritance. There are some passages that talk about the Lord being their inheritance. And so somehow Levites, based on that reasoning, could not own land. But I think it's very evident from the Old Testament that Levites were given cities, they were given uh, property within the tribes of Israel. They were scattered about, but God gave them property, and they could buy and sell, but that was their inheritance. They 
had that as a place to live. They had to have somewhere to live. And I think the proof of that is at one point, Jeremiah, who was a priest, was told to go buy a piece of property. God wouldn't tell a priest to do something that's contrary to his word. So it's just fine for someone to have a piece of property. Barnabas is not compelled, and some people would suggest that that's an act of repentance. I don't believe it was. It was something that he owned, that he had the right to sell, and as he sold it, he gave all of it. But but not Ananias. He sold it and had the money and then only gave a portion of it, but with the implication that he was giving all of it. And that's the act of deception. So he has already drawn attention in verse 3 to Satan filling his heart, but in verse 4, at the end of the verse, he says, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Why is it that you have placed this deed in your heart? And can you see some influence here, both on the part of Satan, but now, lest we attribute all of this to Satan, Peter is placing responsibility squarely on Ananias for his conceiving this deed. So you could very possibly conceive something in your own mind that's a satanic thought and do it and Satan is involved, and you're involved, but you are held responsible because Satan is not your Lord. He cannot force you to do what you choose to do. So Peter draws attention to the root of his action, and he places responsibility upon Ananias. Why is it? And I think a broader thought is, what, what's the motive? Why, why did you do this? What, what really were you trying to accomplish? Was this, as someone said, a higher reputation for generosity than is really due to him? He saw Barnabas and he saw others who were giving all of this wealth and he saw what appeared to be prestige or some kind of accord or fame that became theirs and he is eyeing that and as a result of that, he wants to be in that company. And so he sells the property and only gives a portion just because he, what he really wants is that reputation. But he, he also wants some of the money so that he can do what he wanted to do. Charles Dickens has a work in which he introduces a couple. It's our mutual friend, and the name of this couple is Veneering. Veneering. It's meant to be a play on the word veneer because as they get married, they each think that the other has money and so they think that they're marrying into money and then when they find out on their wedding night that they neither one has money, they got a real problem. And of course, the way they attracted this other person was to have the appearance of money. So they both appeared to have money and it's quite a you know, issue when they find out neither one does. And then over time, as they both realize the reality, they then start to target other people. But how do they target all these people that they think have money? It's because they, it's by presenting that they have some kind of wealth. See, there's this veneer. There's this thin layer. There's a facade there. There's a gloss that makes an appearance, and that's really what seems 
Ananias was trying to do. And Peter asks the question, why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? And then he charges him, as he's already charged him with lying, but now he draws attention to the fact that he has lied to God himself. Not only does his last statement in verse 4 tell us that he's done something very dangerous, but it also helps us to see that the person mentioned in verse 3 is indeed God. The Holy Spirit is God. You can see the equivalence. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? End of verse 4, you've not lied to men but to God. This is one of the proofs of the deity of the Holy Spirit, that he is God. Those two verses help us to see that. But to lie to God? I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing, right, to lie to another human being who doesn't have all knowledge. They may not have knowledge that you're lying. Sometimes lies are told, and the person that the lie is told, they already have knowledge that the lie is not true. But lying to the one whose eyes are in every place, Proverbs 15, verse 3, watching the evil and the good, Lying to the one who Job says sees all my ways and numbers all my steps. Lying to the one who looks to the ends of the earth, Job 28, 24, and sees everything under the heavens. Lying to him? Lying to the one who knows even our hearts that they're more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What did he say? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And we see Jesus in the book of Revelation as the one who truly does see the deeds, judges according to hearts, and gives, as Jeremiah says, to each one according to their way. So what Jeremiah says is applied to Jesus in the early chapters of Revelation. We see that in part because he says to the churches, I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. He knows the good things. He knows what they're tolerating. He knows their sins. He knows their lukewarmness. He knows everything about them. That's the Lord Jesus. And you can better believe Jesus is active in his church here, observing what is taking place and bringing a stop to the deception that had come right into their midst. I quote from, from J.C. Ryle's holiness that's in the bulletin as a think on these things. Ryle said, you may sit under the pulpit of an evangelical preacher week after week and hear his words with a serious faith, but believe them not. But remember this, you cannot deceive Christ. He who discovered the deadness of Sardis and the lukewarmness of Laodicea sees you through and through and will expose you at the last day, except you repent. Oh, believe me. Ryle says, hypocrisy is a losing game. It will never answer to seem one thing and be another, to have the name of Christian and not the reality. Be sure, if your conscience smites you and condemns you in this matter, be sure your sin will find you out. The eye that saw Achan steal the golden wedge and hide it is upon you. The book that recorded the deeds of Gehazi and Ananias and Sapphira is recording your ways. Jesus mercifully sends you a word of warning today. He says, I know your works. And he could say to you, and he could say to me, I know your works. 
there's not a single solitary thing that we've ever done that's hidden from God. He knows our hearts. He knows what you stole. He knows what you did. He knows where you went. He knows how you've broken his law. All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's not anything he doesn't know. Yeah, that should cause us to fear, but it should also cause us to repent. Lord, forgive me. You know all that I've done. And what happens here is Ananias is confronted about his lie to God. It's as he's listening to these words, the, the, the way that the language is phrased here in verse 5, it's in the moment that he's hearing these words that he drops and breathes his last. It's dramatic. Verse 5 says, as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. There's divine judgment, a sudden death as there was for Lot's wife when she turned in disobedience and looked back, as there was for Uzzah when he disobeyed the command not to touch the ark, as there was for Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire, as there was for those 42 children who mocked Elisha and the bears came out of the woods and tore them up. They sinned against God. And God can refrain from judging sin, and often he does in mercy that he doesn't take the life of the one who lies immediately, but there are times where God deals in judgment immediately when someone has sinned. And reflecting on Lot's wife, I used to ask when I taught Christian high school, where would you be if you dropped dead the last time you lied? Where would you be? I mean, I, if I think about the first time I lied, it'd be before I was five years old and I knew it. Lied to my mom. Dead little boy. What'd he do? He lied. Deserved to die. This is a dramatic scene. There's a sudden death. And those who hear, and the, the ones who hear in verse 5 are not extensive, but there are those certainly in the room who saw it, and those also who heard what was taking place. The end of verse 5 says, great fear. Great fear came over all who just heard of it, not just who saw it, but who heard about it. What happened? Well, what happened was the one who held the breath of Ananias took it back. And the reality is he holds all of ours too. Acts 17 says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. My breath can be recalled. My heart can stop at the decision of my maker. I heard of two deaths this week. One was someone expected cancer. The other was a car accident that was sudden. Of course, the car accident was more shocking because it was just happens. There's no 
preparation, expectation. God has his reasons for doing that when he does, but here it's very obvious in this light of the context that this is his judgment upon Ananias. I believe he's showing that in part by his confrontation of Ananias for his sin and also his charging Ananias with a sin directly against God in a very public way. And God took his life. Does God do that with Christians? Sometimes he does. I think you have to say, based on 1 Corinthians 11, that the way God disciplines sometimes is through sickness and other times it is through death. They truly are a child of God. They do bear his name. They know him, but they are dishonoring him. And maybe in a single act or maybe over a period of time, they're dishonoring in in such a way that he just chooses to take them out into eternity. That ought to cause us to fear, to sin, to not be deceptive, to tell the truth. You might ask the question, why the, why the note about the burial? There's both in verse 6 and later with Sapphira the mention of the burial. And it could be, as some suggest, the climate, that the climate is such that the body would begin to decompose, and as a result of that, there would be the stench of a corpse. But there's another possible answer, and I think it's suggestive, that when someone was judged by God suddenly, they were to be buried the same day. Deuteronomy 21-23 applies that principle to the one who's hanging on a tree If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. And then Moses gives this reason, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Why the burial? Why the sudden? I mean, why the quick burial? It's three hours and and he's buried. It very well could be that they understood that this is an act of judgment, that this was God's discipline or dealing with Ananias. We're not going to have a long, drawn-out funeral for this person that God just judged in this way. No, it's immediate burial. Look at verse 7. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Again, we're not given the exact location or the details of the building or whatever. But we do know some facts that it's three hours later that it's Sapphira who comes in. And she comes in without the knowledge of anything that's transpired. She doesn't have any missed calls from the apostles or other people in the church. Doesn't have any access to news there in Jerusalem that would have indicated this had taken place. She's just coming in. Maybe she's out spending some of the shekels they had kept back. I don't know. But suddenly she comes in, and the first question that Peter poses to her that confronts her as to whether she's complicit, verse 8, is tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price or for so much. Did you sell it for, in my illustration, was it 8000 instead of the 10,000 that they really got? Nine. That sounds like no, but it's actually yes in Greek. She said yes, immediately. 
Yes. That was the price. You said it. And Peter immediately knew that what Anna, Ananias and Sapphira had done, they had done together because she knew. Now I say he knew, he must have known by insight from the Lord because he couldn't have known all their interactions with one another. The Lord must have given him this understanding and this information as he confronts this. Just like the Old Testament when Elisha, for instance, is is doing certain things and his servant doesn't see something, but Elisha does. Why does he see what his servant doesn't? Because he's a seer, because God gives him the perception of spiritual realities and things that he did not learn himself. And I believe it's apparent here that Peter is getting such, I mean, he may be getting it by asking the question somewhat, but there's more to it than that. And Peter understands and knows and charges Sapphira also with the same thing, but he adds in verse 9, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? So she lies. She answers in the affirmative. She answers immediately. There's no question. She's not kind of hemming and hawing. She answers falsely. And when someone tells a lie, something that's not true, when they're asked, especially here in the public scene by an apostle, and God, of course, is witness to it. What, 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 is the, what is the feeling or thought of God about that? Where lying lips are an abomination of the Lord. Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies. It's mentioned twice. And one who spreads strife among brothers. What is the effect of such a lie, such a falsehood? Certainly to the apostles, but more importantly to the Lord. What is the effect of that? Well, that tests the Lord. And notice the way he's not called the Holy Spirit in verse 9. He's called the Spirit of the Lord so as to emphasize the authority and the sovereignty of the one who she's lying to. And they have tested you know what it means to be tested? Teachers. You sat in a classroom with students and a student tests you. Teacher might even say, don't test me. Because this teacher has the ability to bring consequences if there's testing. What does it mean to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? He holds the authority. He holds the power. He hates sin. Putting him to the test would be, would be doing something that causes him to act in the way that he really is as Lord. Because he has to. Because he cannot just dismiss that. And how does God... Think about lying. Already read Proverbs 12, 22 and Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, but realize that lying is a sin, that yes, it's like the devil who's the father of lies, but all liars, Revelation 21 says, will find their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If lying is your characteristic way of life and you don't repent of that, 
if you have put a veneer over your life so that what others see is not true, but you're living a hypocritical lie, realize you're in danger. Because God hates lying. He judges lying. Here he judges it with physical death, but he is going to judge it with spiritual second death. And it's more than that. Revelation 21.7 says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What is that like? Pastor John and the deacons and I are reading through Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, and we came across a section in our recent reading that describes what you'll miss and what you'll have. Thomas Brooks says, Alas, what a poor comfort will this be to you when you come to die to consider that you shall not be equally tormented with others, yet must forever be shut out from the glorious presence of God. Christ, angels and saints, and from those good things of eternal life that are so many that they exceed numbers, so great that they exceed measure, so precious that they exceed estimation. Sure it is that the tears of hell are not sufficient to bewail the loss of heaven. The worm of grief gnaws as painful as the fire burns. If those souls wept because they should see Paul's face no more, how deplorable is the eternal deprivation of the beatific vision. That's the vision of God forever. The gate of blessedness, the gate of hope, the gate of mercy, the gate of glory, the gate of consolation, and the gate of salvation will forever be shut against them. That's what you're going to miss. But this is not all. You shall not only be shut out of heaven, but shut up in hell forever. Not only shut out from the presence of God and angels, but shut up with devils and damned spirits forever. Not only shut out from those sweet, surpassing, unexpressible, and everlasting pleasures that are at God's right hand, but shut up forever under those torments that are ceaseless, remediless, and endless. Ah, souls, he says, were it not 10,000 times better for you to break off your sins by repentance than to go on in your sins until you feel the truth of what you now hear. God is very merciful, he says. Ah, that you would repent and return, that your souls might live forever. Remember this, grievous is the torment of the damned for the bitterness of the punishments, but most grievous for the eternity of the punishments. For to be tormented without end, this is that which goes beyond the bounds of all desperation. Ah, how the thoughts of this make the damned to roar and cry for unquietness of heart and tear their hair and gnash their teeth and rage for madness, that they must dwell in everlasting burnings forever. The lake of fire is a very real place. And you will go there unless you repent and turn to Christ. See, there is a way to avoid an eternity in hell. There is a way to avoid that second death, and it's through Jesus Christ. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Your whole house will be saved. Did they believe? 
What does it say? Paul says in Romans chapter 10, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call upon him for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be saved from that torment, from that eternal torment, if you put your trust in Christ. That's the only way. The only way. Is there anybody here this morning who needs to turn to Christ? Needs to turn away from their lying and sin and hypocrisy? They're living in the way of Ananias and Sapphira and turn to Christ? Put off the veneer. Put on Jesus. That robe of righteousness which he gives you will cover all of your sins. The blood that he shed will cover your sins. And you'll be safe. You'll be saved. You'll be protected. You'll find a refuge that not only in life, but in eternity. And you'll get to experience all the blessings and glory of heaven and God. So we come to really thinking about that because of the reality of what's taking place in this passage. God is dealing with Ananias and Sapphira with physical death. Could it be discipline, just discipline, and their spirit saved in the day? Like they had already believed in Christ and God is just disciplining? Yes. But are there some who are, who are dealt with because of their sins in this life and will also experience the second death? Yes. Those who've never put their trust in Christ. Don't put the Lord to the test. Notice in verse 9, at the end of the verse, Peter not only has a perception of what she's done, but he also has a perception of the fact that those who have gone out to bury her husband have come back. And he knows that God is going to deal with her the same way he dealt with Ananias. Behold, verse 9, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And you could argue that somehow Peter saw them through the doorway, but how could he know apart from God that she was going to die? God gave him that insight. And what does she do? Verse 10, immediately, just like Ananias, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. What a dramatic scene. I don't know if you've ever seen someone fall down and die. You might have seen someone suffer and then die, but to fall down and die just suddenly like that, it's dramatic. What is the explanation? What just happened? And the divine explanation for what has taken place on this day is it doesn't have anything to do with Ananias and Sapphira's health. It wasn't their heart. It wasn't the shock of the scene. It's God dealing with them and taking away their breath. And what happens? Those same young men came in and again, same day, buried her beside her husband. What a sobering thing to walk past that grave. Probably a tomb like our Lord was laid in before he rose from the dead a place where they're buried 
in a cavern, some kind of cavern, and some covering is placed over that. But what a sobering thing to remember this couple. And we don't have to go there to see it. We have a record in Scripture. But the immediate effect is great fear was instilled in everyone who heard. Even if they didn't see, but they heard, great fear is instilled. Now, you might have been through this passage with us today, and this really doesn't bother you. It's just a story. But I'm here to tell you it's the truth. It really did happen. We may not have the same apprehension that those did who knew Ananias and Sapphira and were no longer able to talk to them, no longer able to relate to them. But we have a record of it, and it should, because the Word of God is living and active, it should produce that same effect in us. There should be a fear on the part of each of us to not lie, to take care what we're doing in our lives, to not offend the Almighty God and the Spirit of the Lord. This great fear came over the whole church, the believing people. They recognize this to be an act of God. But beyond that, notice it says, verse 11, and over all who heard of these things. So the fear spread to the people who just knew what had taken place in the church. And I think if we're wise, that same fear should be in our hearts. The fear that it instilled in the hearts of those people who observed, who saw, who were witnesses, or who heard on those days We should share that because God is the same God. He still hates lying. He still deals with sin. There are still eternal realities at stake. We just happen to be a church on another continent a couple of thousand years later. But the same Christ who saw Ananias and Sapphira, he sees each one of us. And he knows. And I'm not threatening that he's going to take the same action. But we need to recognize he is God. He can do whatever he pleases. And if he refrains in mercy, that's really still a call to repentance. But if he deals in judgment, that's also a call to repentance. May the Lord help us to fear him and obey him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. I, I said some things before I pray this this morning that I just want to invite, if there's anyone who does not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, has never turned from their sins and put their trust in Him, I just want to make myself available to you to talk to you. If you need to put your trust in Christ, you could do that today. Today could be the day of your salvation. And I hope that you'll seriously consider, if you don't know the Lord, the things that have been preached this morning from God's Word. Lord, we commit to you, even as we've heard what this text reveals about your action in the early church, we commit to you ourselves. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be truth-tellers, truth-speakers, We pray that you'd help us to guard against the evil one and his suggestions to our heart. Help us to resist him. 
We pray that we might not be ignorant of his devices. We pray that we'd be sober and vigilant and that we would fear more than fearing him or his influence, that we would fear you, Lord, because you're the one who has the power to give and take life. You're the one who has the power to give eternal life. And we thank you that you are, for anyone who calls upon you, you're rich in that offer of salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.